Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden for this uh, portion number 54, the final portion of the Torah as we complete uh, the annual cycle. Uh, but have a no worry. Uh, I believe it's three weeks from now, October 9th. Uh, that Monday evening at uh, 6.30, probably, I'll get out emails, but we'll be probably back in the chapel uh, for that, back into our original location, uh, and we will begin uh, the cycle again, but not as Echoes of Eden, but as the Sun and the Scriptures. And so the podcast will be called that. It'll be labeled that way uh, on our website. Echoes of Eden will go into the archives. Uh, Sun and Scriptures will be the one that's the active teaching class and so forth. And we'll... Uh, spend the, the, we'll do usually the summary of the portion, then we'll spend uh, a good bit of the time together looking at how uh, that portion revolves around Messiah, the Son, in some way, form, or fashion, and then also the way we've done in Echoes of Eden, uh, kind of ending with being mindful, uh, we'll end with making it personal. Uh, and kind of looking at what is a personal application uh, for that week's portion that we maybe can take home with us. So to have some of the uh, theological, academic, scholastic look at uh, Jesus in the Old Testament, if you will, but then also a practical look. So that's what will be coming with the Son and the Scriptures. Again, that'll start up uh, October 9th. And I meant to bring them up here. I have the reading schedule for next year or the next tour cycle, uh, but I will have them uh, on October 9th for you uh, with your handout. So have no fear. We'll get you a reading schedule for sure. Uh, but that's where we're headed. Uh, feel free to invite anyone uh, that you'd like. It's open to any and everyone interested in learning about the Torah and um, what it offers us in our lives today. And as we look at the portion this evening, uh, I, I tried to find a way to uh, wrap it up, if you will. Uh, and so I, uh, I tried to, especially the, the final two sections, just try to take different images and readings and portions and kind of put them all together and see how it's kind of wrapping up uh, in this week's portion. Okay, so that's what's headed tonight. That's what's headed uh, on October 9th. So with that, let's begin with the blessing uh, before the study of Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. All right, so portion 54, it's known as Vizot Baracha, and it's uh, the last two chapters of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapters 33 and 34, Vizot HaBaracha uh, means, and this is the blessing, or this is, and um, that, that Hebrew word Zot, uh, this uh, is going to be one of our kind of focus words as we come to the being mindful section, kind of the, one of the words we want to really connect with this week uh, as we think about this Torah portion. Uh, and so, v'zod uh, habacha, what's going on in the portion? Well, it concludes, as I said, the annual Torah reading cycle, Vazot HaBarachah, recounts the blessings, that's the blessing and this is the blessing, 
that Moses gave to each of the 12 tribes uh, before his death. And this kind of echoes something that Jacob of Enu, Jacob our father, Jacob the patriarch, uh, the blessings that he gave his 12 sons five generations earlier and that we read about when we were back in the book of Barashit or the book of Genesis. And in these blessings, Moses, uh, in some ways you could think about it, assigning uh, another way to think about it is he is empowering each tribe with its individual role within the community that would be known as Israel. So he's infusing them, he's empowering them, he's encouraging them, he's equipping them. When he speaks these blessings into them, it's what is going to be able, it is, is giving them this potential um, energy that they can manifest uh, within the community of Israel. And it's a very powerful reminder for us, and uh, sometimes I think that gets lost in our church culture, and that is the power of blessing. Uh, anytime in the Bible when someone is blessing another person, it's not just wishing them well. It's not just speaking good things over them. Uh, it's actually doing something. This is going back to the idea that the Word creates, the Word empowers, the Word accomplishes. Just as God used the Word to create the world, so we use our words to create and in some ways to destroy. Uh, so you think about this like if you have children or grandchildren, you, you speak blessing into them. And when you do that, right, you create that for them. Like your words matter. So if you uh, lesson to keep our, our, our mouths uh, under control, uh, which is this time of year, one of the things uh, that's common to do is to read an individual known as the Chofetz Kaimet. Uh, he is a master, was a master teacher on the power of language and how to speak. Uh, because if you're constantly uh, calling your kid a klutz or an idiot or silly and so forth, that's what you're speaking into them. That's the energy you are giving them to manifest in their life. So we should all, and it's, it's really with any of our conversations with people, uh, always be conscious of that. And so here Moses speaks beracha. He speaks blessing uh, into the tribes as they are about to enter into the land. Vizot ha then relates how Moses ascended Mount Nebo. Uh, looking forward to uh, this coming uh, June. Uh, to be able to ascend Mount Nebo. I've, uh, as many times as I've been to the Holy Land, I've never been to Mount Nebo. Uh, so I'm looking forward to ascending Mount Nebo because from the summit of Mount Nebo, Moses sees the Promised Land. Uh, it even says this from the text, quote, And Moses, the servant of God, died there in the land of Moab, uh, which Moab is modern-day Jordan, uh, and by the mouth of God, and we're going to talk about that phrase, the mouth of God, the word of God. And then it says, and no man knows his burial place to this day. And then the Torah concludes by attesting that, quote, there arose not a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom God knew face to face 
and in all the mighty hand and the great and awesome things which Moses did before the eyes of all Israel. And so that, in many ways, almost sounds like a eulogy. It's almost like you're hearing God's eulogy uh, as Moses' kind of earthly existence in this realm comes to a conclusion. And then immediately after concluding the Torah, finishing the book of Deuteronomy, it is a tradition to read anew the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. So sometime this week, what I would encourage you to do is read the last two chapters of Deuteronomy and then immediately read the first chapter of Genesis. So in some ways, on a very technical level, if you're following what the synagogues are doing around the world this week, the portion is really three chapters. It's the last two chapters of Deuteronomy and the first chapter of Genesis. A lot of deep stuff going on with that. For now, we'll, it's suffice to say it's teaching that the beginning is in the end and the end is in the beginning and that you don't really end your time with God or that the, the Word of God has an ending, but it's a, a never-ending cycle. Uh, so be sure you read the first chapter of Genesis, where, of course, it describes God's creation of the world in six days and his uh, ceasing work on the seventh, which he sanctified and blessed as a day of rest. So that is uh, the summary of the portion. Uh, just want to look at kind of three ideas for tonight. Uh, again, the final two of those three um, I, you could say I kind of wax poetic a little bit, uh, trying to uh, creatively put what we've done together for the last year, looking at the Torah, uh, kind of trying to wrap it all up in the idea of Moses experiencing the end of three-dimensional space and time with the kiss of God, because uh, that's really... Uh, how the rabbis have always translated that verse, uh, that when Moses passes, it's by the kiss of God. And we'll talk about why they translate it that way. So Moses finds grace in the eyes of God. The Torah's final portion, Vezot Habercha, concludes with Moses' death. So Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, And Moses, servant of God, died there in the land of Moab by the word of God. And you'll see that I have word kind of being uh, attention drawn to it because we'll expand upon what's being, what that's being translated from in the Hebrew. According to the historic understanding of the faith, such as the tradition that was alive and well and existed in the first century Galilee, so the tradition that our Messiah knew and understood, that our uh, apostles knew and understood, was the idea that there were 50 gates of understanding, that there were uh, 50 levels, 50 kind of steps on a ladder, 50 50 levels to knowing God, understanding God, experiencing God. And Moses, we know, if you, if you go through the Torah, you can see where he attains 49 of those levels during his life. And some commentators suggest that 
the reason he so ardently wanted to enter into the promised land was because he knew that the 50th gate, that final gate, which is ultimately unification with God, becoming truly one with your creator, that it could only be found in the promised land. Other commentators suggest that Moses did, in fact, attain this 50th gate when he died by the kiss of God, and we're going to explore that. So as we have translated the verse here that's up on the screen for you, describing Moses' death by stating Moses died by the word of God, it literally doesn't say word of God. But we don't, it's, it's one of those where if you don't translate it differently, people probably look back at the verse. It literally says he died by the lips or the mouth of God. Um, and this really takes you to the book of Song of Solomon. Even in the opening verse of Song of Solomon where it talks about the kiss of kisses and all of that, it's that language, right? It's, it's so it's, you know, what do you do with that? But it, it literally is, he dies by the lips, by the mouth, by the kiss of God. Uh, reading the verse literally, Rashi explains that Moses died with this divine kiss. And before Moses' death, God instructs him to ascend Mount Nebo, the mountain on which he would die. From that vantage point, God showed him the entire land. And it says in the opening verse of chapter 34 um, that he could see the entire land of Israel, that he could see the entire promised land until the Yom Acharan. Yom Acharon, uh, which literally means uh, the last or the furthest sea. Now, from Mount Nebo, the context would let you know that means he's seeing the Mediterranean Sea. So the land of Israel is not very wide. It's about, give or take, 80 miles wide, right? And where it ends on one is the Mediterranean Sea. So it's it's describing that Moses is able to see the entire land, including the Mediterranean Sea. But that's the Peshat. But we need to remember one of the ways we have learned in the Echoes of Eden to derive deeper meaning from the text is when we know that Hebrew doesn't have vowels, right? So again, is it dog? Is it dug? Is it dig? You know, which is it? Because in Hebrew, it would be just D-G. There would be no vowels. So one of the ways you pull deeper meaning is the root is the same, but when you give it different vowels, it takes on different words, different meanings. And so what other combination comes until the Yam Acharon, the last C? Uh, you can vowelize it not as uh, Yom Acharon, but as Yom Acharon, which means the last or final day, the final day, the, the end all. And so what that's saying is that what God really revealed to Moses, on a Bashat level, he reveals to him the whole land. He's able to see the whole land. But on a deeper level, it's saying it was prophetic. It was uh, and he had a vision. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was able to see the last day, 
the how everything plays out and so forth, uh, and including the resurrection of the dead. This reading supports the notion that Moses was permitted to enter into that 50th and final gate of understanding just before in the process of his dying by the kiss of God. The name of the mountain upon which Moses died, Mount Nebo, uh, Nebo has the numerical value of 58. So Nebo in Hebrew, when you add up the letters in the word, equal 58, which is the same numerical value as the Hebrew word chen, C-H-E-N, chen, which is the Hebrew word for grace. Chen is a very important word as the Torah uses chen very often to relate how Moses prayed many times to find grace, to find ken in the eyes of God, or for the people to find ken, grace in the eyes of God. Um, and this is the sign that Moses did, in fact, find this grace of God, uh, and that he gave to Moses, uh, acquiesced to his pleas on behalf of the people, as well as allowing Moses to enter into that final stage of becoming one with God. And that's the intimacy of that description of how Moses dies at the mouth of the lips uh, of God. Just as a kiss, right, is intimacy. Think about what a, a kiss is. And again, this is Song of Solomon stuff, right? It's breathing into each other. It's breathing into, which think in creation, right, that's breathing your spirit, that your breath is your spirit. It's putting your being in the other person. And so Moses and God experienced this at his passing on Mount Nebo, which symbolizes and represents grace and uh, his final completion of the union of his soul with its ultimate source, his creator. And so Moses does make it into the 50th gate. The uniqueness of Moses... You know, when we began Echoes of Eden, I struggled with the perspective I wanted to go for the whole year. And maybe after the sun and the scriptures, we'll do it this way. But it's a fascinating way to go through the Torah. Uh, my rabbi, my teacher took me through the Torah this way. And that is to look at each week's portion, uh, essentially how I would describe it, in modern terms, uh, from the perspective of child and adolescent psychology, and how it, the Torah basically starts with this embryo, right? You know, before creation and, and into creation, all the way through the birth and then the development uh, as a small child, all the way up to a, a full-grown adult. Like what you're doing as you're reading the portion is you're you're seeing individuals develop this way, and you're seeing Israel develop this way. Um, but of course, as you're doing that, you begin to work on your own self that way. And it's a fascinating look at the Torah. And so I thought at the end, I would give you kind of a brief glimpse uh, into that perspective. So as we look at this last portion, Vazot HaBarachah in Deuteronomy, we come to the end of Moses' life, 
and his tenure as the leader and the architect of this new nation, Israel, right? Because now they're going to enter into the land. They're going to really become a nation. We've seen them move from being uh, a small individual or from a person to a small family to a a, a, a kind of a grouping of tribes to becoming a people and now a nation as they enter into the land. And Moses' uniqueness is attested to in the Torah with this final assessment of him. It says in Deuteronomy 34.10. Again, this is almost like God's eulogy of Moses. Uh, Because you've got to imagine we attribute the writing of the five books of Moses to none other than Moses. But chances are he didn't write about his death. Uh, at least, I mean, that, that would be pretty difficult to do, I think, right? Um, and portions like this, it would seem almost as if Joshua wrote this or, uh, again, kind of like God speaking this. So it says, and there hath not n- risen, and I'm also using the King James tonight because I love the, the poetic flavor of it. I thought it added a nice touch tonight. And there hath not risen a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This rare testimonial is the Torah's way of further emphasizing the uniqueness not only of Moses, but in many ways of each individual. This quality of uniqueness is extended to include Moses, each of the 12 tribes as Moses proceeds to bless them in beautiful poetry, very much flowing off of last week's portion, Ha'azinu. And his blessing is geared to the unique talents and abilities of each individual tribe in order to encourage them as individuals to fulfill their respective roles in the land of Israel. And so in administering his final blessings to each of the tribes, Moses is following the example of the patriarch Jacob when he blessed his 12 sons before his death. Jacob, whom we might call the first vocational counselor, was able to adapt his projections of his sons' future vocations according to their individual abilities and characteristics. So, you know, he calls Benjamin a wolf. And he talks about why he calls Benjamin a wolf and kind of sets the tone for who Benjamin will be, who he is, and what he will accomplish. Moses does this, but he does it now on a more collective scale based on their signature characteristics and on the caliber of leadership within each tribe. For example, when Moses blesses the tribe of Levi, uh, his own tribe, This is what he says. This is Deuteronomy 33, verses 9 and 10. And again, it's from the majestic King James. For they have observed thy word and keep thy covenant. They shall teach Jacob thy ordinances and Israel thy law. And they shall put incense before thee and whole burnt offerings upon thine altar. Moses recognizes the characteristic of extreme loyalty in his kindred tribe, in the face of the rebelliousness of the other tribes. 
And by forecasting their role as religious leaders and as the spiritual teachers in the future generations. That becomes what the role of Levi will be. The priests will be the teachers and the spiritual leaders and mentors uh, because they will be the ones that can withstand the rebelliousness of the other tribes. The character transformation of Moses, which is a part of his uniqueness, is symbolic of the psychological development embarked upon by the children of Israel. Moses' life began with the trauma. So this is, this is important stuff to think about. When you think about, to me, it's mind-blowing when you see how advanced from a psychological perspective the Torah is. Moses' life began with the trauma of temporary separation from his family, which had a great bearing on his subsequent emotional development especially his volatile temper and anger, such as killing the Egyptian or breaking the commandments or striking the rock, which ultimately prevented him from completing his mission of entering the promised land. However, throughout the Torah readings from Exodus until the end of Deuteronomy, right? We talked about that, that from early in Exodus when Moses is born until the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is mentioned and discussed and seen and quoted in every single portion. And there's only one portion that doesn't mention his name directly, but though he's clearly part of the portion. And so from that time, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, we see a remarkable development of character. His willingness to give up his life and his future in order to save his people, his ability to listen and implement the judicial system that was recommended by his father-in-law Jethro, his overseeing the building of the tabernacle, and his being the intermediary in transmitting the word of God on Mount Sinai, as well as his extraordinary patience and his suffering induced by a rebellious, stiff-necked people all encompass attributes of character that are truly extraordinary, extraordinary. So the Torah alludes to this progression of character in the nomenclature by which Moses is addressed throughout his career. And I briefly want to give you a highlight of this. Because this in many ways, and this can be something you can keep in mind when we do the sun and the scriptures and you go back through the Torah again, now that you've been through it once and you kind of have a little bit of a toolbox and you got a little bit of an understanding and you know the flow of the story and you know things to look for and you know how to find some deeper meaning, this, this is something else you can go through because this is the process you were supposed to go through when you read the Torah from Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy. The same development, because Moses, while a real living human being and part of history, is also an archetype. In other words, there's a Moses in you. And so, briefly, I want to show you some of how Moses developed. As a young refugee shepherd living in Midian, He's referred to by his future wife, Zipporah, which is funny when you think about it, his future wife. It's almost like the wife telling you like what her husband was like when they first got married or something like that. But she refers to him as an Ish Mitzri. That's what she calls him. 
an Ish Mitzri. She calls him an Egyptian man. This is Exodus 2, verse 19, so very early on in Exodus. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. So one of the stories of women at the well, there's more than one, there's more than John 4, lots of women at lots of wells in the Bible. Moses is one of those uh, guys that meets some gals at the well. And when he protects and he delivers Jethro's daughters from some rough shepherds, she reports it not as a Hebrew, not as a nice guy, but she says an Egyptian man, an Ish Mitzri, delivered us, saved us. And so at this early stage in his career, Moses is Egyptian. But see, you've been working through the Torah for a year now. You know what Egypt means in Hebrew, Mitzrayim. You know that it means a place of constraint. It means a place of constriction. It means a place of bondage. It also means specifically a place of bondage to the ego where you serve the Pharaoh. So Moses was an Egyptian. It reminds me in seminary, I had a professor and he uh, occasionally would invite uh, some of his students that he enjoyed more than others uh, to his home for some fine beverages, right? So expensive, expensive scotch, you know, all, all, all of that stuff. And I remember uh, one time at his home, you know, he was going through the collection and all of that. And then he said, and for you Philistines among us, we have beer, right? So by calling them Philistines, right, he was referencing like they were rough around the edge. They were uncivilized and so forth. So calling Moses Egyptian early on is referring to his spiritual status and where he's at, okay? Uh, so Moses' external Egyptian identity, it's clashing with his Hebraic roots, reflecting a conflicted inner identity. And so early on, Moses is an Egyptian, but yet inside he knows he's not. Inside he knows he's a Hebrew, right? So he's got this inner conflict going on and battling. Evidence of the consolidation of Moses' identity is that it moves through the accounts in the Bible. So by the time you get to Exodus chapter 11, when it refers to Moses again in such descriptions, it simply identifies him as an ish, a man. He's been able to break the chains of Egypt. He's been able to liberate his soul from that captivity. Uh, uh, he's disavowed his ego, and he no longer sees himself as an Egyptian. And so he announces, when he announces the coming of the last of the ten plagues, the Torah says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Ish Moshe, the man Moses, was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. In other words, he had become greater than Egypt and Pharaoh. He had rised above it. So he's gone from Ish Mitzri to Ish. And the identity of Moses 
is, as an Israelite is acknowledged by all the Egyptians. And as the story moves along, his deeper spiritual self and his unique, intimate relationship with God is attested to when he's vindicated from the personal attacks of his older siblings, Miriam and Aaron in the book of Numbers. And at that point, when Miriam and Aaron want to speak negatively of Moses, God stands up for Moses. And he says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, Avdi, Moshe, Moses, my servant, in my house is the most trusted. So he's moved from an, an Egyptian man to the level of man. He's, in, he's fully human, what it means to be human and what you're supposed to be as a human. And now he's elevated to another level of being where God calls him Avdi, my servant, and uh, Evid in Hebrew, you can even be son, my son. So he's earned sonship with God. And toward the end of his career, the Torah accords him the highest um, attribute of his identity where he becomes Ish HaElohim, a man of God. So notice he's gone from an Egyptian man to a man to a son the man of God. And upon his death, the final designation that the Torah gives him is Evid Adonai, the servant of the Lord. Moses' relationship with God has become internalized and has evolved to the point where his identity is one of total commitment to doing God's will. In tracking these references, we see the Torah's psychological insights into the unfolding career and transformation of Moses, from being an Egyptian to that of being a servant of the Lord, a man of God. His life personifies the message that he brings to his people, which is not only the conquest of external enemies, but most importantly, the conquest of internal enemies. The miraculous transformation of this ragtag assemblage of Egyptian slaves into an aspiring Am Kodesh, a holy people and nation, in just a period of 40 years serves as a fitting sequel to the character transformation of their mentor, Moses. The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness turns out to be the necessary therapeutic period in the Israelites' psychological makeup which has its roots in the patriarchal period. Beginning with the patriarchs as the founding role models, the starting archetypes, the Israelites acquire a separate identity and they morph into an independent nation governed by the Torah and Moses gives them the judicial system to implement it. They are struggling with this separate identity in the face of the allure of all of the surrounding nations, of all of the surrounding people who are immersed in idolatry and immorality. And God, the supreme analyst, as it were, is aware of the hidden evil, unconscious desires of his subjects who are drawn to these temptations. And yet through Moses... He shows infinite patience after administering the necessary discipline and providing them the structure 
that a parent must provide for the benefit of errant children. So much through reading through the Torah, it's, 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 it's a true lesson in parenting. Uh, from infant stage until they're ready to leave the nest. And this Torah structure includes the basic conditions for growth and development, such as providing safety and nurture, giving boundaries, how to make decisions, morality, and goal setting. The real test of the degree to which they have internalized this structure will come later in the book of Joshua, after the conquest when the Israelites and the conquered nations kind of have to live together and cohabitate. In these weekly Torah readings, we've not only a record of events and narratives, but we have archetypal character studies of different personalities when viewed from the lens of psychological and behavioral insight. We've seen the internal development of the Israelites from their infantile need for things like immediate gratification to being able to stand patiently at Mount Sinai and then say, Na'asevanishma, we will do and then we will understand. We've seen their development from being childish and narcissistic to the recognition of the concern for others as they say, Ve'ahavta le'reacha kemocha, love your neighbor as yourself. And we've seen their gradual development from being chaotic and self-centered in their behavior to a disciplined structure of morality. The Israelites have marched forward to their external physical goal of the promised land. But in tandem, they have moved forward in their internal development toward the goal of greater maturity as a nation and as a people. And they've done that because their leader and their mentor and their redeemer, Moses, first accomplished it himself. And then he led the people through it. So it's a fascinating look. So next time you go through the Torah, try to keep that in mind. Not only of the development of Israel from pre-embryonic, to conception, to birth, to the infant stage, the toddler stage, the adolescent stage, the young adult stage, and being set free. Because it's, it's all there, and it's also in the life of Moses as well. And finally this evening, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's, it's worth it. It's truly trying to wrap up not just the portion, but the Torah. How does this all come, come together in these final chapters of Deuteronomy? So we want to be mindful oops, of the Zot HaBarcha. So the first word of the final portion of the Torah, the first step on this last leg of the journey the Hebrew word is zot, Z-O-T. You see it there, v-zot. The v is just and, so zot. That's the feminine form of the word for this, T-H-I-S, this. That's one of the things I really want you to focus on this week, is zot, this, this. Now, throughout the Torah, 
There are certain words, simple words, words like zot, this, that are always code. They're always code for something deeper. And zot is always code for the Shekinah, the indwelling, feminine, if you will, aspect of God. The imminent, sparkling, divine presence that most of the time lies hidden and yet waiting at the center of everything. That's the Shekinah. Pretty much what the church really means by Holy Spirit is not Ruach HaChodesh in Hebrew. What we mean when we say Holy Spirit is what the Hebrew language calls Shekinah. Shekinah. That kind of hiddenness of God, but yet is at the center of everything guiding us. Zot, the Shekinah, is waiting to be discovered, embraced, honored, and redeemed, longing for us as we long for it. And throughout our lives, we receive the light and the blessings of Shekinah in flashes of terror or beauty. The light of the infinite shines through this finite world. A veil is lifted when we speak of, oh, that was revealed to me, or oh, and God spoke to me, or oh, the Holy Spirit revealed to me, or I saw in Scripture this. That's Zot. That's the Shekinah. Our physical existence is unwrapped to reveal a splendor and a brilliance that is the soul and the innerness of all things. These flashes awaken in us a yearning for the truth, an aching desire that, te- that invades us and tears our hearts open and a surrender to the Beloved. But then the veil drops, the light fades, and we're surrounded once more with seemingly dead and dense matter. No sooner do we have that great revelation, that great discovery, that great insight, that amazing flash of light, and then it's gone. And we return to the task of manipulating the material realm, even as the details slip beyond our control, and everything that we try to grasp passes away or changes. So Moses climbs the final mountain of his life. And as he does so, he blesses us as he faces death. So Gyal Rinpoche, in his book, The Tibetan Book of the Living and the Dying, said this, quote, Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. That's why I've often shared with people as a pastor of nearly a quarter of a century now, I would far rather do a funeral than a wedding. Not because I'm morbid or not because I'm not happy for the couple, but because at a wedding, no one could give a care in the world if I'm there or not. No one could care what I have to say. No one is interested in anything spiritual. No one there is focused on the things of God. 
But at a funeral, I have their attention. They want to hear what I have to say. And they want to hear what God might have to say. Why? Because death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. No one, no one, absolutely no one goes to a funeral and when they look at the casket, does not at least briefly think that could be me, that should be me, that will be me on some level. Death has a way of focusing us on life. Moses looks into that mirror of death and he opens to the tribes and to us blessings. For love is as strong and stronger than death. And in the presence of death, those veils of the superficial and the veils of the trivial drop away. And the power of love is revealed. Each of us must climb the same mountain. And if we're to unlock the blessing, the transforming love that is in us, We must stand without flinching in the presence of death. In the presence of death, all bets are off. When faced with death, we try to stop death any way we can. And so we try to buy love or we try to prove ourselves. When reputation, wealth, success, and worldly power are stripped away by the reality of death, the blessing that we give and receive is of the purest essence. And facing death, we're given a key to a locked garden, the garden of our innocence. And there, there we find the Shekinah directly. We call to the ultimate reality that until this moment has been disguised beneath the layered garment of our lives. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 13. O woman in the garden, all our friends listen for your voice. Let me hear it now. Facing death, we receive life in its fullness. And so the blessing of Vizot Haberacha comes as we open to the divine presence of this Zot. This. This life. This step. This breath, this moment. And facing death, I open to receive the abundance of now, right now, this. So, what is this for you? See, so often we're focused on everything but this what's right in front of us, what we're living and experiencing, what we're seeing, what's in our hands. There God is hidden right out in the open. The secret, the blessing, the beracha is zot. That's the blessing. Zot, this, this. I lay down my fear of death My arms are free to embrace the treasure of each day, of this day. 
Psalm chapter 90, which, by the way, Moses, not King David, wrote. Psalm 90, the psalm of Moses, says, Teach us to treasure each day, zot, this, that we may acquire a heart of wisdom. When we treasure zot each day and acknowledge how precious life is, the heart of wisdom opens and expands, receiving into it the blessing that is our inheritance. The death of Moses It represents the ultimate and most profound spiritual challenge that God gives to each of us. The vast body of literature, poetry, the midrash that describe the death scene and burial of Moses stand in contrast to the actual stark and spare amount of space it has in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a very tiny part of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a couple of verses. And there are literally dozens upon dozens of rabbinic commentaries on those couple of verses. It's that significant. It's that significant. Deuteronomy, where it says that Moses died by the mouth, the lips, the kiss of God, where he was buried where no one knows where his grave is. The fact that Moses' gravesite is unknown poses a major challenge in the development of Judaism. Religions tend to develop glorification of great men and women. Oh, he was so great. We're nothing. Let us honor him. Let us sanctify him. Let us worship him. Let us go and pray at his grave. Let us receive the merit of his goodness. But here, the message is clear. Don't look for Moses and don't look to Moses because it's not about him. It's about you. The challenge for each one of us is to plant and to tend the seeds of prophecy. Each one of us must stand up to Pharaoh. Each one of us must take off our shoes at the burning bush. Each one of us must receive the divine name. Each one of us must sweeten our bitter waters. Each one of us must journey courageously through the wilderness. And each one of us must come to Sinai and receive the Torah for ourselves. And each one of us must also face death. Through that initiatory encounter, we receive the fullness of life and are finally able to give ourselves wholly to God. It's ultimately what's happening. Moses is doing the ultimate death to self so that he's consumed within God. The complete giving of self and the receiving of life is expressed in that image of the divine kiss. Moses dies by the mouth, the lips of God. In that kiss, we give our lives away. Everything we have been clinging to and grasping is finally released in that kiss. All the fearful power that has been devoted to pushing away pain and death is finally released. In that kiss, we can finally love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. And in that kiss, giving and receiving become one. So the challenge of the portion for you this week is to surrender your lives in loving generosity. 
It means working wholeheartedly for things like justice while letting go of your attachment to any kind of outcome for your effort. It means loving with an abandon even when there is no guarantee that love will be received or returned. It means writing books whether or not anyone will read them or appreciate them or understand them. It means singing songs that perhaps no one will hear. And it means dying to your ambitions, dying to your personality, dying to your preferences. Dying again and again and again. As I alluded to earlier, the very first line of the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, says this. He kisses me with the kisses of his mouth. Each kiss is another death and yet another rebirth. Each kiss is a practice in letting go. And yes, each kiss is an initiation into abundant life. Yet the ego is an expert at holding on. The ego is the consummate survivor, the preserver of the status quo, which in its eyes sees as the only sure thing. The spiritual challenge of Vizot Habacha gives us the challenge to risk what is known in order to step into what is unknown. Moses is commanded to die, even though, as the text says, his eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He was completely, 100% healthy and strong. Nothing wrong with him physically, emotionally, on any level. In the stories about his death, Moses turns away every messenger that's sent to claim his soul. Only the divine kiss can claim him. Only the consummation of our soul's desire can allow us to surrender to the fortress we've built and defended for our lifetime. Only when we drink from the river of silence shall we sing Song of Songs. And when you have reached the mountaintop, only then have you begun to climb. And when the earth claims your limbs, that's when you will truly dance. And that is where we will end the Torah portion. I would encourage you to listen to that again. I've embedded in it oh, so many goodies for you. Uh, oh, so many goodies. Um, but it really takes, in many ways, what we've spent the year doing. What we've spent the year doing. The whole account of the Torah was to get us to the pinnacle of Nebo. To get us to the pinnacle of Nebo where we can receive the kiss of God. All right. So October 9th, we'll pick it back up. Genesis 1. All right, let's close with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai noten hatorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Go in peace and in strength. Amen.